Thank you for joining us for this message from Cornerstone Community Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Okay, good morning, everyone. The title of my message today is Staying Sexually Pure in a Sensual Society. And I would rate this message PG by the Pastors Association of America. Um, So, actually, I'm going to be talking about David and Bathsheba and their adultery. Um, I'm just going to be using the language of Scripture. I'm not going into any sort of details or anything like that. But if you do have children and you think that's not appropriate, uh, we have Children's Church available. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Everyone knows what our society and culture is like. Um, It's a uh, sensual culture, I believe. And I think really what's contributed to that uh, besides human nature, is we have all these tools now to spread what's evil. We have internet, we have multimedia, we have social media, we have TV, we have movies. So those things are used for good and godly purposes, but those things can also be used for uh, ungodly purposes. So we, we all know that, we're all aware of that. Um, just to give you some statistics that I looked up that were kind of interesting, in 2008, there was a Gallup survey of 54% of Americans responded, and they said they knew someone who had an unfaithful spouse. Now, we would expect that in the world. Okay, I was looking for Christian statistics in the church. The only thing I could find was something from 2000, and um, uh, let's see, it was, get the exact year on that. Um, I'm sorry, 1988. In 1988, Leadership Magazine did a survey, and they polled 1,000 readers from Christianity Today, so probably a a good church sampling there. And what they found was that 45% of them admitted to something sexually inappropriate, and about 25% of them admitted to an extramarital affair. So this is 1988 in the church, at least from that survey. So we know it saturated the church. I mean, we... We live in the world, but we're not of the world, but yet sometimes it creeps in and we allow it, and uh, that's not good. So the purpose of today's message is let's keep this stuff out of us, okay? We're going to live in this world. We're going to be influenced by it, uh, but we don't have to buy into those influences, okay? We can resist those influences. So today I want to... start a two-part series with you. Today we're going to talk about David and Bathsheba, and I'm going to give you five steps that are like a slippery slope that led David into adultery. Okay, so we're going to basically see, the Scripture says, we are not ignorant of his schemes, right? So we're going to examine how Satan tempts us today. Next week, we're going to examine how can I fight? How can I resist? How can I... Um, not fall into the schemes of the devil. Okay, so that's, that's the plan for this week and next week. Um, before, before I go into these five steps, um, we all know adultery is wrong, right? The law in the Old Testament in Exodus 20 says, you shall not commit adultery. And we also know that there was a penalty attached to it. And if you read in Deuteronomy 22.22, Uh, Take a look at that on your screen or in your Bibles. If a man is found lying with a married woman, 
then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So there's some seriousness going on with this sin, right? I mean, the death penalty. And uh, it's no less serious today. The consequences have changed. The reason we don't have the death penalty for adultery in the church is because Jesus went to death on our behalf. Isn't that good news? But the sin is still as serious and grievous in God's sight as it was back then. So we certainly want to stay away from that. But, you know, that's just kind of a negative command. You shall not commit adultery. It's like, why can't I have sex outside of marriage? Or, I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, God says it's wrong. Okay, I guess that's a big deal. But why did God say it's wrong? Um, That might help motivate us. It helps to motivate me. Um, Well, let's look at the opposite of you shall not commit adultery. How about you shall honor marriage between one man and one woman as defined in Genesis 2? Okay, isn't that the opposite of you shall not commit adultery? God, in other words, is saying, hey... I'm pretty serious about this marriage thing between one man and one woman, and I don't want it messed up. But why would God say that? I mean, did that ever occur to you? Why, did God, why does God make up the rules and the laws that He makes up? And the only thing I, I can come up with is this. It's part of God's nature. God is holy. right? God is jealous. God is pure. God is love. God is compassionate. God is faithful. Okay, so God's nature really is, his, is what's communicated through His laws to us. And so, think about this. From Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, God, why did God create Adam and Eve? Did you ever think about that? It wasn't just to create a couple people and populate the earth. That wasn't why God created Adam and Eve. They were actually created because God wanted fellowship. Somehow, deep in the, in the Godhead, God wanted to fellowship and pour out. God needed a container to pour His love into. He wanted it. He desired it. So He creates man, and He wants this relationship with men, right? So Adam and Eve sin, and that relationship is tainted. So God has to make a covenant with Abraham and then with Moses to reestablish the relationship that He wants. He wants a people for Himself. And when you go to the end of the book, in Revelation, which we'll see in a few minutes, you're going to see the same thing. God wants a church, a bride, to be in relationship with. Now, this relationship that God has with His people has some rules to it, okay? And it's based on God's nature. God is holy, right? God is, is jealous for His bride. And so any suitors that try to move in on God's people, uh, God's passion for His people and His love is aroused, okay? And that's why He was so strict with Israel. He told Israel, hey, if you worship other gods, you know, basically you're going to suffer punishment. Why did God say that? Because He was jealous for His people. He wants that intimate relationship with His people. There is a holy jealousy. And so, I believe it's the same with the church. Jesus uh, gave us a new covenant, right? Okay, so God's, God's relationship with people is based on covenant. In the Old Testament, He made the covenant. With Jesus, He made a new covenant. Now the church, or the bride, we are in covenant with Jesus. And in the covenant, we're to be pure, we're to be holy, we're to be spotless. 
in God's sight because that's how God is. And what's how marriage fits in with that is marriage is covenant, right? Okay, so God's relationship with His people is based on His covenant. Marriage on earth is a picture of God's relationship with His people. And so whatever God does with the church, whatever God did with Israel, that's the way we're supposed to be in marriage. And so if you look at it that way, we have the privilege, the high honor of experiencing on earth something of what we're going to experience for all of eternity at the marriage supper of the Lamb and beyond. So that's why marriage is so precious. That's why there is no premarital sex. Um, that's, that's dirty. That's, that's not pure. That's not God's nature of holiness. Let's take a look at some of this covenant language just to show you what I'm talking about. Hosea 2.19 and 20. This is how God spoke to His people under the Old Covenant in Hosea 2.19 and 20. He's speaking about the nation of Israel. He says, I will betroth you to Me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to Me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. Do you guys see God's character in there? Faithfulness. Righteousness, justice. Um, that's, that's, God's, that's who God is, and that's the type of relationship He desires to have with Israel. Let's move now to Revelation 19.9. Let's check out what God says about the bride. Uh, this is John writing the words that Jesus gave him. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. You guys realize we're invited to a marriage supper. This is going to be a pure, beautiful, intense, awesome, magnificent event. This is the culmination of the age. is when the church is taken to be with Jesus. I mean, there, there is nothing greater than that. I mean, this is awesome. Turn the page. Revelation 21, 2 and 3. Here is is some language talking about the church, the bride. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell with them and they will be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Do you see God's purpose? Do you know why you're sitting in these chairs today? Do you know why you were born? It's because God wants to pour the fullness of His joy and love and power into a bride. That's why you're here. That we have that coming up. We have that to look forward to. Now it's in that light that we get to experience a taste of that in our earthly marriages. And that's the beauty of marriage. And so, I'm hoping that's a somewhat of a motivation to keep the marriage pure. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, everyone's seen the beautiful bride walking up the aisle, right? Dressed in white, gorgeous gown. and I mean, she's just radiant. And the bride's walking up the aisle to her husband-to-be. And, I mean, the music that's playing. And it's and especially if she's been pure and not defiled. I mean, the Holy Spirit's all over that couple. He's all over that wedding. I mean, there's joy unspeakable right there. 
But what if halfway up the aisle, the bride in her beautiful white wedding gown, what if there's a voice coming from the side and beckons her to come over and she goes over and she gets sidetracked and all of a sudden uh, she gets tempted and she starts to fall. Can you picture mud being thrown onto this beautiful white wedding gown as, as this bride whose focus was uh, uh, on her future husband um, gets sidetracked in temptation. So I want you to picture who we are. We're just a pure spotless uh, bride of Christ and God wants to keep us all the way to the end of this thing. Okay, And when, we, when it's time for us to go, we'll hear that well done, my good and faithful servant. So I'm hoping that's, that's a motivation to not fall into sexual immorality. Not because don't commit adultery, it's wrong. Okay, well, why is it wrong? Because of the goodness and character and mercy of God and His plan for us, that's why it's wrong. So I'm hoping that gets you a little bit stirred up to show you the beauty of who we are in Christ's sight. Okay, now, I want to do an anatomy of adultery. We are not ignorant of a scheme. So let's take a look at 2 Samuel 11.1. And I'm going to read 1-5. through Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Okay, so we have the account of David and Bathsheba. So I want to talk to you. I want to analyze this because as we go through it, this is like how not to do it. These are things to watch out for, to take note of, um, to run far away from these things. All right, so I'm going to give you five stages that led to David's swirling path into adultery and its consequences. Number one, I'll call the vulnerability stage. Okay? David, in my estimation, was vulnerable to an attack by Satan. Say, Are we vulnerable from Satan's attack? Well, yeah, uh, we can be. You remember Jesus in the garden? I'm sorry, not the garden. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And so he resists all the temptation. And you remember at the very end what, what, it, what it said about Satan? It said, Satan left until an opportune time. Do you know that Satan has an opportune time that he's looking for in each one of our lives to tempt us? Okay, I believe there was an opportune time when David walked out on that roof for Satan to come and tempt him. So Satan walks out on his roof. Probably wanted to get some fresh air. So he goes out, couldn't sleep. Maybe he's thinking about the battle. I don't know, it doesn't say. So he goes out, and all of a sudden, pop up, and there's a woman. 
Now, if David had turned around and gone back into his house, it, could have been, it would have been uh, significantly better for David. Um, but he didn't do that. David was vulnerable. Why was David vulnerable? Well, one, it seems like he was alone. I don't know where his wives were. I don't know if they slept in a different palace or a different house. But it didn't appear that his wives were with him. And two, it seems like he should have been with his men fighting. Look at verse 1 again. 1 and 2. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. The scripture doesn't say this, so I'm going to make an, asse- an assumption. Okay? I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. Um, but I'm going to make this assumption that it seems like David should have been gone out to battle and not left alone. Because of this language, you know, at the time when kings go out to battle, you know, David sent Job and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Doesn't this seem like a foreshadowing, that conjunction, but? Like something's about to happen or something isn't quite right? Okay, and also another clue is um, if you read all the way up uh, through chapter 10, David's normal habit, all the other battles, David went out with them, with his men. And just to give you one in 1018, uh, this, this, this was right before chapter 11. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak, the commander of their, of their army, and he died there. So you see, David, David's normal practice was to go out to battle. It wasn't until later on in his life when he got older that they wouldn't let him go out to battle okay? because they realized his value to Israel. So two things. Number one, if you're alone that might be an opportune time for a temptation. Number two, if you're not where you're supposed to be, that might be an opportune time. How many of you remember Jonah? Was he where he was supposed to be? I threw him in the, in the ocean. So, uh, just something to think about. Now, how does that relate to us, this opportune time thing? Well, picture uh, maybe going on a business trip, ladies or men, right? And uh, maybe you're with a group of people from your workplace, but you're alone in a hotel. Because when you travel on business trips, you don't, they, don't like, they don't like roommates. Okay, corporations don't do that, and it's wise. It's good wisdom. So you're sleeping by yourself. Your wife's not with you or whatever because you're on a business trip. So you're alone in your hotel. You're alone with HBO. You're alone with pay-per-view. You're alone with the bar downstairs. You're alone with the spa. Right? You're alone with your partying group that you came with. You met them down at the bar for dinner. They're all having a few drinks. Hey, what's it? One, two, three drinks? I mean, you know, everyone, you know, no big deal. I'm not going to get drunk or anything. Okay, you're vulnerable, right? You're vulnerable. Or maybe you're um, Joe College student or Joe single person. And uh, you live in an apartment. Your roommates come to you and say, well, hey, why don't you go to the basketball game with us tonight? You're like, nah, I don't, really, I don't really want to go. I'm a little tired or I got some homework to do. So you're going to stay home. You're vulnerable. And what if you're uh, married Marlene and you're in your workplace and uh, your marriage isn't too great. Your husband, he's always working. Uh, he's kind of strict. Um, or he, he's just not that much fun. He's not talking to you much because he's always tired and, 
and worn out, and, and your, your marriage has kind of grown stale over the years, and, and your intimacy is not what it used to be, well, married Marlene is vulnerable, right? She's vulnerable. And she works with a crowd of fun people, very fun, dynamic group of men and women. She's vulnerable. Okay, David was vulnerable. All right, let's, let's keep going. Let's go back to David. He's standing on the roof. He looks at Bathsheba. He didn't turn around. That was a mistake. He kept looking, and that leads us to the second stage, which is taking the bait. Okay, David took the bait. How did he take the bait? Let's look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. In other words... She was on his mind, right? He's standing there. He saw. He watched. He didn't turn around. There was something deep down in his heart that started to grow like a little plant. And it was a little piece of energy. And it grew in his heart and it started to grow. It's exciting. It's very exciting. Okay, And all of a sudden, that energy started to drive him and it drove him to, hey, who is that woman? So he sent his servants to go find out. Who is she? He took the bait. You say, well, did you make that up? No, James made that up. Actually, you got it from the Holy Spirit. Let's see, let's see what James says in 1.14. James is talking about temptation. He says, but each one of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. David began to lust after Bathsheba standing on the roof in his heart. Okay, he was enticed. The Greek word for enticed means to take the bait. And when you go fishing, you're trying to trick the little fish to bite your plastic lure, right? And I never can get the silly fish to bite my plastic lure or natural lures, worms, whatever. I, I just can't do it. The only fish I think I ever caught, I caught it because I had to specifically pray. I said, God, I really would like to... I'm no, there's no lie. I was in Alaska and I'm uh, on Prince William Sound and we're in a canoe and salmon fishing's really good. And I'm casting and I can't catch anything. I don't know what I'm doing. It's like we come all the way up to Alaska. I want to eat some salmon. I said, Lord, would you please let me catch a salmon? Cast in, no lie. I mean, cast in and pull out a salmon. And, and we cooked our salmon and it tasted great. So that's the only way I can trick anybody to do anything. Okay, but <laughs> um, David had some bait dangled in front of his face, right? And he bit into it. He took the bait. Okay, he made a big mistake. Um, same thing happens with us, right? Back to Joe, college student. Your roommates go out, and that leaves you alone, and you're going to do some homework. And so you think, well, you know what? Maybe I'll call my girlfriend to come over, and we can do some homework together. Or maybe it's a little more devious than that. Maybe when Joe, college student, was being asked by his roommates, he secretly knew, you know what, if my roommates go out, I can call my girlfriend and have her come over. And so again, that little thing, little piece of lust starts growing in his heart. All right, so his roommates ask him to go out. They take off. So he gets on the phone and he calls his girlfriend to come over to his apartment. He took the bait. He took the bait. Married Marlene's at work, right? Her marriage isn't that great. And Sly... 
Sly starts talking to Mary Marlene. He's kind of interested in her, says hi to her, and um, begins you know, conversation with her. And he's subtle. And he subtly starts to flirt with her. You guys know what flirting is, right? It's drawing undue attention to yourself, and God's not into it. So Sly is talking to Mary Marlene, and he starts building this little relationship. She's emotionally vulnerable. She may even be physically vulnerable. And uh, he says, well, hey, you know, we're all going out to lunch. Like when you work for a corporation or a business, it's popular you know, for a group of you to go out to lunch. You know, I did it a, long, a lot of times. So Sly asks Marlene to go out to lunch in the group situation. It's cool, no problem, right? So she goes. But why does she go? There's nothing wrong with going out with your coworkers to lunch, right? But see, deep down in her heart, she's lonely, she's hurt, and now she's being emotionally stirred up by Sly, and she kind of likes the attention that she's getting. And so the reason she's going to lunch is because of this guy, not just to go out with her coworkers. She took the bait. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so we're, we're looking at a progression here. And unfortunately, it doesn't end very pretty. Back to David. David sends forth for her, right? So David's, I mean, he's really getting, he's really turning on the machine here. Uh, this leads to the third stage. The first one was um, vulnerable. second stage was you're taking the bait. The third stage is overt sin. Okay? Overt sin means uh, the lust that you had in your heart is now going to be expressed through the practice of sin. All right, so let's take a look. Verse 4 and 5. So David sent messengers and took her. And when she came, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to herself. Okay, so do you see the progression? He sends for her. He finds out who she is. Then he sends for her, brings her into the house. Again, I don't know where his wives are. We know where the army is. They're out fighting. That's where he's supposed to be. And he lays with her. All right, so now he has not only taken the bait, but has given birth to a physical expression of adultery. Okay, what does James say about that? Let's go back to James 1, uh, 15 and take a look. I'll read 14 again. But when each one is tempted, when he, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, I'm going to start there, sin is accomplished when you begin to practice it and make it a habit over and over and over. Does that make sense? Okay, now you are accomplished in the art of sin. Congratulations. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Um, you know, Joe, college student, right? His girlfriend comes over. She brings her textbooks, no problem. They eat. They study. Done studying, a little tired. Sit in the couch, turn on the TV. Put on a nice romantic comedy. <laughs> he holds her hand. So nice. Well, it gets a little bit more involved, okay? So what starts out as something seemingly innocent and nice and romantic isn't because lust was in his heart. 
which is why he invited her over. And the next thing you know, they're doing things um, that they had no intention of doing maybe at all. And it snowballs and they can't stop themselves. And they end up in sexual immorality. Or if they don't end up in sexual immorality, they've done everything else but, which is lust, which is sin. Okay, so he took the bait and now he's, he's practicing sin. Once you do that, do you realize, once you cross lines, thresholds, do you realize how much easier it is to do it again? Because you're practicing it. It's like practicing for a sport. When you practice sin, it gets easier and easier to do. If you practice righteousness, which we'll talk about next week, it gets easier and easier to do. The goal is to practice righteousness. Okay, married Marlene, she's out to lunch a couple of times now, group situations, right? Sly. Well, all of a sudden, um, the gang doesn't go out for lunch one Friday. So Sly says, well, hey, why don't we go out to lunch? You know, no problem, still a public place, right? That's cool. So Sly takes married Marlene, they drive together, go out to lunch, they're talking, they're having a good time, have a good lunch. I mean, he's giving her all this attention, she's feeling so good, and, and uh, maybe even she starts talking about her, her relationship at home and how it's not good, and he's so nice to her, and he's so kind to her, and she's getting all this stuff she doesn't get at home. And he says, well, hey, um, I, I left some papers at my place, um, do you mind if we go back before I, we go back to work? She says, yeah, no problem, so they go back to his apartment. And they go in, and he gets, maybe they sit down because they're in some kind of heavy conversation, right? They sit down on the couch, they start talking, and the next thing you know, adultery happens. Okay, and it didn't just happen. It happened because she was vulnerable. It happened because she took the bait. And it happened because she began to practice what was in her heart. Do you see? It didn't just happen. There's a stage, series of stages. And so now, she's in trouble. <clears throat> You know, um, I know I haven't made any of these things up. These are real situations that I've come across over the years with pastors, youth pastors, brothers, and sisters. I haven't made any of this up. And the most difficult thing for me is to hear it and it's to hear how hard it is on these people that have done these things. And my heart just breaks for them because, you know, you want to help them. But the consequences are just sometimes severe, okay? So once you go to uh, stage three and you begin practicing sin, that leads us to stage four, the great cover-up. Now you don't want anybody to find out what you're doing, right? Because it would be absolutely horrible if your church finds out that you slept with a guy the church doesn't know how to handle it sometimes. The church gets in the flesh. So, I mean, there's all, you certainly don't want your parents to find out if something like this were to happen. I mean, so you've got to cover it up, right? So we're in the great cover-up. Let's look at, uh, I'll go back to David now. Okay, so David's like, all right, he's, he's, his mind is churning. All right, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? I know. I'll bring Uriah back from the battlefield under the guise of getting a report from the battle. Yeah, that's what I'll do. So he sends his messengers. They bring Uriah back. He says, hey, tell me about the battle. Uriah gives him a report. David says, hey, I mean, you fought hard for the armies of God and Israel. Why don't you go back to your house and be with your wife tonight? Go back to the war tomorrow. So Uriah goes out, but he didn't go back to his house. Where does he go? He sleeps with the servants 
at the entrance to David's house. So that's told to David the next day. And David's like, uh-oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. I need him to go down to his house. I know. I'll invite him over for dinner and get him drunk and then send him down to his house. Yeah, that's what I'll do. So that's what David does. He invites him. He gets him drunk. Hey, go down and see Bathsheba, your wife. So Uriah leaves the house. What does he do? He sleeps out with the servants at the entrance to David's house. David can't get him to go. So David's like, uh-oh, this isn't good. This isn't good. This isn't good. So let's take a look. Um, verse 11 and verse 12. I'll read part of verse 10. David says, Why did you not go down to your house, Uriah? I'm the king. I told you what to do. You didn't do it. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. You see, look at the character of this guy. I mean, David's on a spiral downward, unfortunately. And Uriah, man, he's shining like a star. I mean, if there's some encouragement in this story, it's Uriah, right? I mean, this guy's got a great reward. So David, unfortunately, the wheels keep turning in his mind. I'm going to have to kill him. So he writes a little note folds it up, gives it to Uriah. Uriah transports his death notice to the battlefield. Isn't that something? Uriah gives it to Joab. The little note says, oh, take Uriah to where the fighting is the fiercest and then withdraw your men. So he struck down and killed. And that's exactly what happened. He struck down and killed. <clears throat> and... It's just not a good picture for David at that moment. Um, you know, we, when we sin, you know, when you're in the workplace and you're flirting, we think we're deceived. We think no one sees it. Isn't that amazing? You say, well, I would never think that way. Yes, you would. Because if you say, no, I wouldn't, you're deceived. Because the Scripture says, take heed lest you fall. In other words, whenever you think you're not going to sin, that's pride, and you're about to come into a fall. All of us, if we're in pride, can be deceived and fall into sin. Okay, that's part of what we need to learn about this story. Okay, if you're flirting, nobody sees you, God sees you. And if you're in your room alone with your girlfriend, and you're doing things you shouldn't be doing, God sees you. I mean... Duh. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't we like tell that to our kids? I know I've shared that with my kids. It's like, look, if you, if you don't tell the truth to me, I might not see you, but you know, God sees you. You want to please God, don't you? But they don't get it. And we as adults, we don't get it sometimes, do we? We really don't. Because we're in pride and we want, we want our sin. Unfortunately... <clears throat> That brings us to the last phase. Um, if you continue in that, the last phase would be death and destruction. So let's take a look, James 1.15 again, and see if that really is the case. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth 
death. The wages of sin is death. Is the wages of sin death for a believer? So wait a minute, I've been redeemed. I have eternal life. You can't put that on me. Yes, I can. You go commit adultery and sleep with somebody, you get HIV, AIDS, and you die. The wages of sin is death, right? You're a believer. You died. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're not subject to the consequences of sin. Because we are. We really are. Um, and we don't want to go there. That, that's part of the reason to give this message. You don't want to go here. I don't want to go here. Okay? Um, you remember, and by the way, God loves us so much, this covenant that God made, we underestimate the, the power of covenant. God loves us so much, He's not going to let us stay and wallow in the mire. He's going to come after us and bring us back into the sheepfold because He loves us that much. So He's going to chasten us. He may discipline us. But His ultimate goal is to restore us to that precious relationship. That's what God is seeking to do. God is not angry and looking to condemn us and beat us. Okay, I'm going to get to that here in a minute. So God raises up a Nathan. You... You, you look at the internet and you watch the, your porn on the internet and you look at your racy movies. God's going to raise up a Nathan for you. Not to condemn you, but to draw you back because he loves you. So God raised up Nathan. You remember Nathan, the prophet? So Nathan comes to David and he says, Hey David, there's this rich man and there's this poor man. And this poor man has this little ewe lamb and it's like the family pet and they hold it every night and it brings their family comfort and everybody pets it. And this little lamb is just like the cutest thing and the kids love this little lamb. I mean, this little lamb is, is just brings so much comfort and joy to this poor man's family. And then there's this rich man, David, and he's got tons of flocks and herds and this uh, a guest comes to the rich man and so he, he wants to prepare some food quickly so instead of taking from his own multitude of, of sheep, he goes to the poor man and steals his lamb and slaughters that and feeds it to his friend. David's like, off with his head. I mean, he's history. Let's, let's look at what David's reaction is. I'm in chapter 12 now, verses 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this thing deserves to die. David's anger. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it in secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel 
under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, by this, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. <clears throat> the wages of sin is death. David lost a child. Who else did David lose in all this thing? Remember his son Absalom? Remember Absalom rebelled against David? Who died? Absalom died, right? So David's heart is torn out by losing his son by Bathsheba. David's heart is torn out by losing his son Absalom. And of course, they fought a battle, didn't they? So a bunch of Israelites died because of this situation. David left ten concubines back in Jerusalem. Remember David's fleeing Jerusalem because Absalom is, has a coup and he's trying to take over. So David leaves, leaves his ten concubines behind to manage the house. And then Absalom goes in in public in daylight just like God said through Nathan. So everything God said was true that happened. You know, if, if I were David, I'd probably be devastated. Because he, he really was a man after God's own heart. And, I mean, can you imagine the temptation that Satan had after all this to beat him up? You big loser. Everything that God did for you, and you did this to God? I mean, you ought to just end it right now. I mean, can you... I guarantee that happened. But that's not the end of the story. <clears throat> That's not the end of the story. Um, let's, let's kind of sum up the message here and uh, bring, bring some encouragement to you through this message. Uh, <clears throat> you know, David, even though he sinned horrifically, was forgiven. Deuteronomy 22.22 said he should have died. Right, the law said you, they should have taken him outside with Bathsheba. They should have stoned both of them. And they didn't because God showed mercy. And you want to read about mercy, turn to Psalm 51, 1 through 4. <clears throat> this is why David is called a man after God's own heart. Psalm 51 was specifically written by David after he was confronted by Nathan. And it says that in the little title. David says this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So there so that you are justified when you speak and are blameless when you judge. What do you do if you flirted? What do you do if, if you have looked at some uh, inappropriate material on the Internet? What do you do if, if you have started to fall into emotional uh, relationship with somebody else that's clearly wrong? What do you do if you have committed sexual immorality or adultery? I mean, what do you do? You do what David did. You confess it. David confessed his sin, and God showed mercy. Now, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess 
our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and lead us into all unrighteousness and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So that's good news. Not only that, God is, God is looking to restore us into fellowship with him, okay? So, you know, David, David cried out. This was David's heart cry. If we sin, this is what we should do. We should have this heart cry in verse, um, verse 10 of Psalm 51. And you guys all know, Keith Green wrote a song about it. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation." And sustain me with a willing spirit. I mean, do you see God's, do you see David's heart? He's crying out to God, I, I want, I want the relationship restored, God. I want to know the joy of my salvation. I don't want to wallow in, in this misery of sin. I, I want to come clean, Lord. He, he wants to repent. I mean, He wants to do the right thing. And that's what God wants us to do, is we can confess with our mouth and God will forgive us. Now, you need to understand this. When we sin, Satan will come and try to beat us up and call us a scumbag, call us a loser. Well, they're not going to accept you at church for what you did. They're not. I mean, so-and-so at another church, they didn't accept him. He couldn't even go to church. He might as well not even go to church. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, speaking, I'm speaking stuff I know of today. I know people today. I'm not just making this up. This is exactly what's been going on. This is exactly how Satan's working. No, we, we will accept people in church that confess and repent. And we will lovingly come alongside them and build them up and help them and encourage them and give them strength. No matter what, what we've done, right? None of us is perfect. We all fall short of the glory of God. So when Satan does come and say, you really are a big loser, don't go to church, you need to, you need to talk to Satan about that and say, you know what? You're right, Satan. I sinned. But that just reminds me of what Christ has done for me on the cross and how he's defeated you by his being ascending into heaven and me receiving the Holy Spirit and me having all my sins forgiven. So thank you, Satan, for reminding me that your demise is coming. You're about to be thrown into the lake of fire. All my sins are forgiven. I'm going to be in heaven forever. So thank you, Satan, for reminding me. You need to speak to him the truth and not buy into that trash. You can beat yourself up with guilt and condemnation. You understand why the Scripture says, there's now no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was condemned in our place. Jesus was beat up so we wouldn't have to be beat up. So when Satan starts to beat you up, remind him of who was beat up in our place. Isn't that good? I mean, there's some encouragement there. There's some encouragement there. You've got to fight. We have the victory. We have the power. We have the Holy Spirit. Alright, so God wants us to confess our sins to Him and repent, right? We need to... James tells us to do something else. James tells us to confess our sins to men. That's scary, isn't it? So now you've got to reveal your little secret to men. Let's see what James says. James 5.16 <clears throat> We have that on the PowerPoint, James 5.16. But James says this, Confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. For the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man 
accomplishes much. Now, why would God want us to confess our sins to one another? Do I really have to do that? Yes, we really have to do that. Why? Because God has designed the body to come around for us to come around each other and help and build up, edify, and encourage, right? So that you may be healed. The reason you're confessing is so that your brothers and sisters can pray for you that you can get the healing. You can get the strength that you need so you don't fall back into uh, whatever sin has been committed. Does that make sense? Um, You really need to walk with somebody. I mean, I've, I've been meeting with somebody now for months to encourage him. And he's told me how he's been condemned by church people. He's all discouraged. He won't go to church. And when you have to try to undo that, that's really hard. That's really hard. And you can just pray. And all I do is listen. I go out with him. We talk. I don't condemn him. I don't do anything. I just listen. I'm there. I, whatever words the Holy Spirit might give me to speak to him, I speak to him. That's us. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the body of Christ, right? We restore each other. Isn't that cool? Now, if you fall into serious sexual sin or if you fall into adultery, you need more help than probably normal. You need, you need good counsel from leaders of a church, uh, the elders, the pastor. Uh, and you also may need to go get professional counseling from a Christian counselor. You need some help. Because once you practice sin and practice sin, that's what you're doing over and over and over again. It's like, it's like the drunk, Right? It's like the alcoholic. Um, It's so hard to come off the alcohol when you've been doing it for so long. So you really need your brothers and sisters to come alongside of you and and to not condemn you, but help you walk through this thing, if that makes sense. Uh, Finally, realize this. Temptation is not sin. Because you may feel bad that you were tempted. You may feel dirty if you've been tempted. You haven't sinned if you've been tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points just like we were, but He was without. So the goal is everyone's going to be tempted. It proves our faith. The goal is when we're tempted, it's to not buy into it. It's to resist the temptation. And I already mentioned earlier... um, You say, well, John, I'll I'll never commit adultery. 100% of all normal men in this church and church worldwide have committed adultery already in their hearts. Jesus said, if you lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. So I've already committed adultery. And you have too. All right, so let's not get proud. Let's stay humble and admit that we might need God's help in this area. Can we do that? And let's see what uh, Paul encourages us with temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There's some good news when we're tempted, right? We don't have to fall. We don't have to take the bait. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, who um, Barry's going to be showing a great video clip this Wednesday, the Holy Spirit lives in us, 
And He's God. And He's going to warn us. He's the, the warning lights, the sirens are going to be going off. Wait, get away from her. Get away from her. Run away from this situation. Don't hit enter. Don't hit enter. Pop up. Turn the power off, man. Get out of town. Run away. Flee sexual immorality. I'm going to be talking about all these things next week. Okay? The Holy Spirit's the one who's doing that. He's going to give us a strength to resist the temptation to bear up and endure it and not take the bait and not buy into it. So when we leave today, as we leave today, we go away encouraged because God is our strength and our portion forever, right? Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Could I have the prayer team to come up? I would like to give us an opportunity to do what James said. James said, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Um, So if anybody needs prayer for anything, um, if you want to get right with God, now's a good time to do it. You don't want to let anything unconfessed go because you see the harmful consequences that it can have on us. So, um, in a minute, I'll step down and uh, you guys are welcome to come up and receive prayer if you need prayer for anything. Um, And I'll be available too up here to pray for people if anybody wants prayer. Uh, If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've never received forgiveness from your sins, you can't fight temptation. You're going to be beaten every single time. Um, you can actually receive Christ today to be your Lord and Savior, be born again, and have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness and in purity. Isn't that awesome? So if you want to do that, um, you can just come up and talk to me, or you can talk to any one of the people up there and say, hey, I want, I want Christ in my life. I can't live. I already know the destruction that you're talking about, John, and I don't want any part of it. And if... if um, If you have blown it in any way or you're being riddled by guilt and shame, come on up. Get some prayer. I mean, don't be embarrassed. This is not the time to say, everyone's going to look at you as you come up. (laughs) I'll be the first one to step forward, okay? Hopefully I won't step off the stage. (laughs) Um, I dealt with God yesterday. I confessed my sin to God yesterday. Okay, so I'll be the first to say, I want prayer for strength to overcome these temptations and not take the bait. Okay, so I confess. And I hope you will too. Uh, So that's all I have. And uh, thanks for listening. Make sure you come next week. Next week's the exciting part. I mean, we're going to really, I'm going to give you some really practical ways to not take the bait. We're going to walk in purity, walk in uh, holiness next week. Thank you for listening to this message from Cornerstone Community Church. We are located in Lynchburg, Virginia at 525 Old Graves Mill Road. You can find us online at cornerstonelynchburg.com, contact us by email, cornerstonecom at comcast.net, or call us at 434-847-4796. We pray the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace.